You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you're doing okay because that is pretty much the best case scenario for uh, how we all are doing is okay. I'm doing a little bit better today because I get to bring you a great conversation with a new friend of mine, someone whose work I respected and I still respect for a very long time, and this, this is a huge episode for me, so you'll probably notice the length of this chat, and uh, that's because uh, I ask a ton of questions, and that is Brian McTiernan. He is our guest today. He sang for a band called Battery, which was huge in my uh, upbringing within punk and hardcore, and he also currently sings for a band called Be Well, who is releasing a new record on Equal Vision Records uh, later this month, I think on the 21st. The record's called The Weight and the Cost. It is really, really good. Trust me in telling me telling you this because I've got a chance to listen to it, and I, I was frankly, I was floored. I was like, "Wow!" Like, because I mean, these are people who played in like Darkest Hour and obviously Battery and Bane, and uh, they just know what they're doing. And this is a really, really good record. So I had to have Brian on um, because I wanted to pick his brain about so many different things, and we go basically everywhere. <laughs> Any place imaginable, uh, that is where we're going, talking about, you know, life, bands, music, everything encapsulated in this conversation. So I'm very excited to chat with you about that or to bring that chat to you. Um, you can always email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Please email. I always like to uh, correspond with all you fine humans out there. And also, uh, yeah, just, you know, to check in, just to make sure that you're doing okay. That's uh, that's something that uh, I, I just like to have that connectivity because, you know, frankly, staying in your house for long periods of time, you know, kind of wears on you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and you can also, please, if you want to do me a favor, you can leave reviews on Apple Podcasts, uh, on Stitcher, on anywhere else you are listening to this podcast. That always helps out the show. And uh, yeah, I would appreciate that. And also telling your friends, that's the best way for this podcast to get into the people's ears that need to listen to it because, uh, you know, frankly, that's the best way you can find out about stuff, right? Word of mouth, right? Not just letting the algorithms spit things out at you. So please do that. And um, yeah, here we go. Let's just dive right into it. Here's Brian. Straight up, like, you know, when I was first discovering, you know, the more harder edge stuff after I got into the, you know, Epitaph and Fat Record stuff and, you know, was going down the rabbit hole. But um, Battery was huge for me for a few different reasons for like, and, you know, these I know will obviously speak to you because I mean, clearly you're in the band. But um, the uh, the clarity of vocals on the recording, like, you know, vocals were definitely at the forefront and it was like, oh, I could like understand and hear and like, you know, something to hold on to. Um lyrically obviously there there was a uh, disaffectedness that was you know upon it where you know you're being put on by uh you know uh going to high school and all the experiences that you have in uh you know the real world uh but then also obviously intelligent it wasn't just kind of your uh, sort of traditional you know uh, whatever youth crew lyrics or whatever and then the final component was just sort of the the, uh, the unity aspect. Like I felt like you were, you know, attempting to reach out to obviously everybody that was listening to Battery and kind of be like, hey, I know you feel weird. Like, come on board. Like, you know, Battery is for you. 
Um, and, and this may sound like a, just a total simple question, but like, I guess, how did you land on those things? Because, like, you know, Battery is just a, is still a very unique band from that perspective. Um, well, I mean, uh, there are a couple things. Like, hardcore, for me, really, like, um, it sounds really cheesy to say, like, saved my life. <laughs> but, like, when I was a kid, I had, like, both my brother and I had, like, severe mental like depression and my father has like pretty severe OCD and my mom has had like pretty like you know serious struggles with her mental health as well and I mean I pretty much grew up having really like I wasn't really good at sports I wasn't really like super I wasn't good at school I was not like, um, you know, we were compared to like my friends. We were pretty not, not, I don't want to say poor because we were fine, but, but, you know, we lived a very modest life and I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, which is a pretty like, well, wealthy area. And our house was a wreck. My friends never came over. I mean, I, I just didn't have anything that I felt like good. I didn't feel like I was worthy of anything and I I kind of like I just I when I first found music and I first found punk and hardcore and and things like that it was really the first time ever in my life that it was like like people were excited to see me. I mean, like what I was 10 years old going to hardcore shows with my brother and I was like a little novelty, you know what I mean? It was like stage diving and fucking people like these fucking skinheads are like putting me on their shoulders and like, you know, like we, it was the first time ever in my life that I had like a sense of community and I felt like people appreciated me and respected me and, and and then and that was before I was playing music. And then eventually when I started playing music, it was like the first time again that I ever had like reinforcement for something that I created. You know what I mean? Like everything up to that point, I had been like, oh, God, a fucking soccer game or swim. Like I was just bad at every I wasn't I felt bad at everything. I was kind of bad at everything. And then this music thing happened and it was like you know what? Like we, when I was 14 years old, we recorded the battery demo. I was in eighth grade and it just fucking came out awesome. And all of a sudden, I mean, you know, I mean, like, like there's, there's a long backstory to how that all came about. But the short version is I just remember being in eighth grade and walking up to the promoter at the Safari club in DC and giving him my demo and being like, hey, Sarge, I have a band now. And he called me and was like, this is fucking great. You guys want to play with Sick of It All? And it was like, holy fucking shit. And so, like, it really was the first time that I, I ever felt, like, worthy of anything in my life. And not, not to, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that in a dramatic way. Like, it's only in retrospect that I can, like, kind of, like, see it. And then I think that, like, the first battery record, like like when we did um when we did only the Die Hard Remain, that was like a I was still like like 
I mean, I was, I don't, I, that's probably not the record you're talking about from a lyrical point of view with, with this. So that was like, uh, we really like, I was, I was just 17 when we, when we recorded that and I was, I was young and I was really angry and I, I, my life was like, you know, I loved hardcore, but like I was still living at home and I had just dropped out of school and my life was kind of fucked up and, and I, and it's just like kind of a reflection on like where I was. But by the time that we did until the end, um, which is, which is my, you know, I'm very, I'm proud of that record. I mean, I feel like, um, by the, by the time we did that, I had moved to Boston. I, I had dropped out of school, moved to Boston. I had this crazy idea that I was going to open a recording studio and it happened. And, and, and then just more reinforcement that like this matters i matter the things that like i'm saying on these records are not just for me anymore they're like you know there there's a sense of community and there's a sense of like you know and it was really the first time like when we did until the end that 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 i was able to like kind of say you know what like I was around all of this like Boston straight edge where it was really like exclusive, you know, it was this like kind of cocky, like we're fucking awesome. And I was very turned off by that. And I, and I, I really felt like this thing that was so like magical to me and so important and so inclusive shouldn't be like rejecting people because they're not straight edge or rejecting people because they're, different and and like and I also really had like I all of a sudden had a strong sense of like that like high school is fucking like you know it's like I watched my brother be I mean bullied to the point that it scarred him for his like entire life and even now it's funny I mean this is why I love podcasts but I listened to my brother on Toby Morse's podcast and heard him talk about things that I never knew, you know? So all of a sudden I, I just felt like I feel these things and <laughs> I want to say them. <laughs> and, it, and it, and, and it was a really, it was really like, it was really, I mean, and things like, you know, I would probably write it a little differently, but like now, but like, like, like why is she in pain? You know, I, that was kind of inspired. My wife, who that I met in high school, had an an eating disorder, and I and I thought I remember thinking I always Seven Seconds is like one of my favorite um, bands ever, and um, I always think about like Man Enough to Care or not just um, not just Boys Fun, and I thought like I'm not sure that I've ever heard anybody like talk about this thing that is like so um you know like so rampant in in women's lives and I don't know it was just cool it was like I think that when we were making until the end it was really the first time that I ever felt like I like not only like do I matter to like the promoter or whatever but this this is going to kind of live on and and it it's an opportunity to say something that's like really important to me. The other thing about until the end is I was at a I was in kind of like mentally a good place for the first time maybe ever in my life at that point because 
I had gotten out of my house with my parents, which I needed to happen, and I had gotten away from, I don't want to say like the kids I, I was hanging with were <laughs> bad news, but like, you know, I was hanging with kind of a rough crowd, you know, guy had been into graffiti in DC and been arrested a bunch of times and there were fights and stuff that like, once I got away from that, I just was like in a much better place. So anyway, I kind of landed at until the end, it was like kind of a perfect storm of like finally having a little bit of confidence, having kind of the skill to actually articulate what I was feeling and finally being at a place in my life where I wasn't just like kind of totally lost in my own bullshit. So that's the long answer. Appreciate so. the uh, walking through those steps. Cause I do think it is one of those things where you, you know, because you had all of this experience kind of leading up to this, you know, you were able to, um, you know, more confidently step into all of those things that you're talking about and then actually be able to, you know, execute on some level, even though obviously you weren't thinking about it in those terms, not like, hey, I'm going to execute a business plan or whatever. But yeah, I, I completely understand what you're saying. I'll tell you something really funny about that record, actually, is that <laughs> almost all of like, like I, well, Ken came up to record that record in Boston when I have no idea why we did this, but we tracked the drums in Boston and then we drove to Atlanta to record the guitars and vocals with Issa from okay. the fun. Okay. But, and I have no idea why this was, I think that like Ken Olden and Ray Capo had, um, they had like some rap project that they were about to do. So for some crazy reason, Ray Capo like was in the car with us driving to Atlanta. And I was in the back seat with headphones on listening to the song. Like I had not heard the songs before that and writing the lyrics while we were driving to Atlanta and Ray and they had just finished Mantra and Ray and Ken literally like listened to Mantra on repeat for like 14 <laughs> hours while I wrote like pretty much all I, all the lyrics for that record were written in like two or three days. Yeah. That's and incredible. then and then I recorded all the vocals in like a day. And then I fell asleep, like just totally crashed and woke up when they were doing gang vocals. And it was like just a fucking total whirlwind. It was That's wild. amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was totally yeah, I crazy. I love that. I love that. Um, you know, kind of, you know, reflecting, cause I mean, y you have, uh, you know, been able to, you know, express yourself in a lot of different interviews. So I'm, I'm trying not to, you know, till over the same ground that a lot of other people have. Um, it, you know, it sounds like, you know, your upbringing, uh, you know, with you and your brother, um, your, your parents were pretty permissive in regards to, um, you know, you guys doing this weird stuff and going to shows, <laughs> you know, having those experiences, um, or was that just basically you guys were going to do it kind of regardless of your parents' feedback? No, they were permissive. So like my, my, my parents are amazing. And I, and I think that like, you know, that they, they're, they struggled. I mean, you know, they, they, they struggled, but they like wanted us to be happy. I know that they did. And we had this, we really lucked out because this, this is again, a really crazy story, but this like, we lived in an area where there were a lot of like embassies and diplomats and things like that. Cause we were right outside of DC. And this, 
family moved in right up the street and the son the father was the like ambassador from new zealand and their son was this like super awesome badass skinhead dude um and like was like knew every band every like just literally like i would go to his house and he would just do you like this? Do you like that? He literally would, pl- he started off playing me like GBH and, and, and discharge and things like that. And I'm like, eh. finally he played me seven seconds. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is, <laughs> this was fifth grade. So my parents loved him and loved his family. And he was like a really badass, like tough dude. So they let initially my brother go to a show with him. And then, um, and then I'll never forget this. It was, my, I had gone to this like field trip with my swim team and I got back and I asked my mom, like, where's Mike? And she's like, Oh, he, he went to see seven yeah, seconds. You traitor. <laughs> yeah. You traitor. And I was just like, Oh my <laughs> fucking God. So he, my brother's first show was seven seconds and justice league at the old nine thirty club. And so anyway, I was so mortified, like so bummed. But then two weeks later, there was another show and they let him bring, um, bring him. But they like for all of my parents, you know, warts, like my mom literally would, she knew how much we loved hardcore. Like from that point on, we went to every fucking show. There was like, I don't think there's like a DC hardcore photo that exists from like that era on where like i'm not standing on one side of the stage and my brother's not like up front singing along <laughs> and my mom would sometimes like bring us and like literally just drop us off and and like just drive around for like four hours while we went to the show on a school night or like the <laughs> there was this war zone youth defense league show at um this place called Wust Hall that is now the new 930 Club. And we we drove down to the show with Tim Owen from Jade Tree. I don't know if you know Tim, but but anyway, a riot broke out. This like DC was like the most violent hardcore scene at that time. And like a straight up like riot broke out. And Tim Owen and Chris Oliver left my brother and I, like got in their car oh, and left. Geez. So we had to go like we we had to like run outside and the, there was like a Roy Rogers this like fast food place across the street and they had locked the doors because of all this fighting. We're like banging on the door. They finally let us in and we called my mom and she had to come down and pick us up at like two o'clock in the morning in the worst neighborhood you could ever imagine. So, yeah, I mean, if they had not been the way that they were, we would not have had such immersion in the scene so and then my every band ever stayed at our house so it was like you know there's not a lot of parents where it's like three bands on tour just like crashed out in every single room on every surface you could ever imagine but through that we ended up meeting and really knowing some like really incredible bands and it was that was it was a it was a wild time. Yeah, no, that's incredible. I, <laughs> and I, I imagine there's some mornings, you know, she made pancakes for everybody. And like <laughs> that sort of just like stay, <laughs> staying with parents is like the best thing ever on tour. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> um, and then it all, you know, like you were mentioning, you know, when you first got, you know, introduced via your, uh, you know, the the New Zealand consulate friend. Um, what yes. what kind of, you know, like you said, you heard, you know, maybe the more aggressive stuff first, but then, you know, it was the melody in seven seconds that might have, you know, drawn you in a little bit closer. Um, was it, uh, you know, was it kind of the the visceral nature of the music that sort of drew you in initially? Um, you know, what, what kind of spoke to you, uh, as you first started to kind of, you know, encounter this stuff? Cause I mean, frankly, that is pretty early to like, you know, uh, start to understand kind of the context of aggressive music. Cause you know, when you're whatever, nine or 10 well, years there, old, it's, it's, there were a couple, yeah. there were a couple things that happened. Like, so my brother, my brother's hat, his, my brother's, my older brother's best friend, sister was dating this guy, Glenn that played in a really cool DC like revolution summer era band. And he, he, he got, uh, he got my brother. My brother started coming home originally with like the cure and the Smiths and things like that. And then he, it's funny because kind of like Mike and I both kind of got, and I started getting into that. And then I'll never, my, my, we wanted punk stuff, but we didn't really know what it was. And I'll never forget, my mom took Mike and I to a record store and just, like, said to the guy at the record store, like, we want to buy something punk. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we ended up buying Dead Kennedys in God We Trust. And I'll never forget coming home from the mall, my brother and I, like, going to the record player and putting it on. And it sounded so fucking crazy that I we couldn't figure out what speed it was supposed to be because it sounded so fast and crazy fast. Right. And then it sounded like fucked up slow. So anyway, so through we just we liked I mean, I thought the look was cool. Like I thought and then um, Tim's sister, my brother's friend's sister, ended up giving us a videotape of suburbia the movie and we watched that so many times i mean it was like not even funny and then so in fifth grade i started wearing like a trench coat and combat boots and like you know the full like, uniform like yeah the full the full uniform and um and the funny thing is had i not like started dressing like that that Jason guy who introduced us to seven seconds and started taking us to shows, he would have never like, he came out of his house one day cause I was walking up the street. I had this, um, jean jacket <laughs> with an exploited patch on the back. And, um, he came out of his house and was like, Hey, and just introduced himself. And right. He's like, I smell, it's funny I smell we, a punk. <laughs> I smell a punk. Yeah. So, but then he kind of made it his mission to like get, I mean, I just like it's so crazy like how different my life would have been had I not met him. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. No, you have you have all these so. like signposts on the road, whether it's like records or people or whatever. And yeah, when you start to think back and kind of reflect on them, it is weird how, you know, your life as a pinball well, uh, in a pinball well, machine. So, so this is what's this is what's the craziest thing about him. So so he took us to all the shows and then he he was uh, he went to high school where um, my brother eventually went to high school, but there was this other like skinhead dude from the scene that went to that same high school. And so 
Jason introduced me to him. He then introduced me to his younger sister, who I started dating in sixth grade. And then I would go to her house after school, and he played drums in a band. And the band that he played drums in, Ken Olden, was the guitar player in. So good. So that's how I met Ken. Right. And also, they, they let me come and watch their band practices. So I would literally go after school and watch them write songs. And, like, you know, it yeah, was start just, to get an immersion was, of that. Was, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it, was, it, was really, it was really cool. Yeah. As you always know, rockabilia.com is the place that you need to buy all of your band merch. Trust me in saying that. And then use the code PC100Words, and that gets you 15% off your order. It is an amazing place to buy anything you could possibly think of in relation to band, merch, band paraphernalia. They got posters. They got puzzles. They got anything you need there at rockabilia.com. Fast shipping. They take it from the Midwest and bring it to wherever you're at. And they have over half a million items, all stuff that is officially licensed by all of your favorite bands. So they get paid. You're supporting an independent business. You are helping out this this struggling independent music economy that so many of us are aware of and are feeling. And Rockabilly is doing everything they can to make sure that uh, not only the bands are supported, but that you get the merch that you need. So again, visit rockabilly.com, PC100Words. That's the words PC. You probably know how to maybe spell that on your keyboard. (laughs) 100 words, that's the number 100. And that gets you 15% off of your order. Thank you very much, Rockabilia. Um, and you know, like you were, you were mentioning earlier, uh, in regards to you know, like your your high school experience and just kind of like the you know the inner turmoil that both you obviously and your brother were kind of going through. Um, you, and I know you didn't finish high school, uh, but you know what what kind of kid did you find yourself, uh, I guess, being in high school besides uh, you know just obviously in your head and you know maybe shy. Like you know, were you like you said, you sampled a bunch of sports and stuff like so- that. I wasn't, so I actually, it's funny because my brother and I kind of responded in the total opposite ways to like high school and all of that stuff. So interestingly, I wasn't bullied in high school. Um, I, when I was in fifth grade and I started like, I started like wearing a trench coat and my combat boots and I was in, we were both in Catholic school and the and the school like we like we didn't have money so we because my my mom had been a nun the catholic school was letting us go there for free and when i started kind of acting out and dressing weird and being kind of kooky they told her i had to go (laughs) so i essentially got kicked out of fifth grade (laughs) and my brother stayed there because he kept to himself like and and then I was, you know, middle school was like kind of okay for me. When I got to high school, I mean, I yeah, like I was the opposite. Like if if you I was not tough, but I was real crazy. So like I think for a lot of people it was pretty clear that like if they tried to pick on me, it would not like end with me just like putting my hood on and walking away. <laughs> which is what my brother did. So like I kind of got in, you know, fights and 
high school was like like the the my life like when I started high school my life like really 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 fell apart and was getting in fights I skipped like the first like five days of high school and and ended up um getting kicked out of ninth grade in ninth grade and was really was in a really kind of bad place and my parents didn't know what to do and ended up putting me in a hospital for a month and um and then um which was a real real crazy interestingly I really learned how to play guitar pretty well when I was there and um I had (laughs) battery had I had broken up already and Ken had started doing Worlds Collide and it was when I was like when I was away I started playing guitar and then and I really wanted to do something that was like more like I really grew up on like DC like more like soul side and rights of spring and thing embrace and things like that so um when i got out of the hospital i i'll never forget i was at this fugazi show um on the mall which is like was probably maybe one of the best shows i've ever been to in my life and and um the do the the this friend of mine asked me if i would come sing in their band and i was like no, I don't want to sing. I want to play guitar. And he's like, oh, I didn't know you played guitar. And so I went to try out and that was what became Ashes. Um, and so then Battery was like not happening and I was doing, um, I, so this dude, I started that band with, so it was, that was Matt, Matt Squire played drums and then um, this guy Noah played bass and he was great. He was like, he we became really close and the band started doing really well and we played a handful of shows and i i was in ninth grade and then like he died he got struck by lightning and like was awful i mean it was maybe like one of the most traumatic things that's ever happened in my life because it was like I had just like gotten out of the hospital and I was back in school and I was at at a new school and I was kind of doing well. And I was then hanging out with these other, these creative kids. And I felt like this connection with them. And that really like kind of like threw my life back into like a tailspin. And um, yeah, it was just, that was, it was, it was, it was was crazy. Yeah, sure. Sure. And like, uh, I was actually going to ask when, uh, like you said, when you were, you know, away for, uh, you know, a month at the, basically it was like a, uh, sort of a psychiatric hospital to try to kind of like, you know, it was, it was, it was a psychiatric hospital. Sure. Did you, um, was it one of those things where you kind of just like, uh, put your head down and were like, all right, I'm just going to get through this. Uh, you know, were you, I guess a willing participant? I mean, I know that you really had no choice. Yeah. I mean, so, so like the, the first week I was there um, was awful. Like, I feel like so awful for my mom. Like, this place basically kind of, like, convinced my mom. Like, so, <laughs> this, I had met, I had met some, like, pro, like some kids who were, like, went to, like, artier kind of smaller schools. And I, I had said to my mom, I think I could do, because I was doing really fucked up at school. And, like, getting in fights and getting arrested and, like, shit was really bad. And 
I kept saying to her, like, I think that if, you know, if um, I was at like one of these other schools that wasn't so like all these jocks and 500 kids per grade and just so hectic, I could I could do OK. So I learned I feel so bad for her that this is how it happened. But they she basically she told me. You know, we're going to we're going to go get you tested so you can go to one of these schools. <laughs> And so we like, I was feeling great and we like walked through the hospital and we're like walking down the hallway. And then all of a sudden I walk through a door and she doesn't come and they closed it behind me. And it was like, You're like, Oh, this fuck. isn't, yeah, this isn't it. <laughs> oh geez. So like the first week I was there, I was a fucking wreck and I was like fighting with fucking nurses, you know, like just out of control. And the other thing that was super fucked up about it is, which I think is illegal now is that I was on a word with adults and kids oh yeah that's not cool which is fucking insane yep um but to be honest with you um once i kind of settled down it was okay like it it was like i was out of my i was away from my family life and like at that time my brother and i were fighting all the time too with each other like he thought i was an idiot and i thought like why is he getting, you know, letting people walk all over? And we were really not, I mean, you know, now we are so incredibly close, but, but it was really only like, it was really later and later on that that happened. So, so yeah, so it was a psychiatric institute. And then I, they, the other thing that happened for me that was saved my life was they recommended that I go to residential, like long-term, like basically get like locked up and my insurance didn't want to pay for it. So my only other option was to go, to go to this like high school. Um, that's, I don't want to say it's like a juvenile detention center, but it's basically like you live there during the week and you, you come home on the weekends sure. and it's like for like troubled, troubled kids and um but there was a eight month waiting list or something so like i got out of the hospital and i'm like just not going to school and my godmother ended up stepping in and saying like they can't do that and pushed my parents and advocated for me and finally got me into back into school where it wasn't that and once i kind of got out I got into like a different environment with some different kids that didn't know me and I was doing okay. So that, that was what also was like so traumatic about Noah ended up ending up dying is that like, I was finally starting to like put it all together and, um, right. And then, and then that happened and then, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. Hey, this is Sam Sumataro. I sing for a band called Drain from Santa Cruz, California. I'm here to tell you about our debut record called California Cursed, now available on Revelation Records. This summer, we're going on tour with Go to revelationrecords.com for more. And here's four seconds of what we sound like. I'm stoked to be part of the Revelation family. Let's take the remaining 26 seconds to dive into what it means and what's up at Rev. 
Revelation kicked things off in New York City in 1987 with Warzone, Lower East Side Crew. After that, Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today, Judge, Inside Out, Chain of Strength, and many more. The times changed in the early 90s, and Rev was there with artists like Quicksand, Texas is the Reason, Far Side, and Into Another. There's new music from World Be Free, Constant Elevation, Urban Sprawl, Dare, and reissues of the classics from Inside Out, Side by Side, and Orange 9mm. Check out the Spotify playlist series. Ah! It's all at revelationrecords.com. And because of your you know, early exposure to punk and hardcore and you know, going to shows, and like you said, being so involved in the scene, um, you know, did you, uh, I guess, kind of uh, immediately like the idea of like playing in a band? Um, I mean, I know you oh, obviously did it yeah. at an early age. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, if I would, y- y- you would, you would, I, I, if I was like not at a show, I was like in my bedroom, like, moshing by myself you know singing along i mean i i like sure i mean so yeah and we 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 were just so immersed like my brother was doing this fanzine um called free thought which i mean i really wish he would like scan them and put them online because they were really amazing so but we would get all the demos you know from from all the bands and like and then we had a friend that had a car so every weekend we were driving to New York City and Trenton, New Jersey. And I mean, I, when I was in eighth grade, just like, you know, <laughs> going to all these fucking shows. So all I wanted to do in the world was be in a band and play music and be around music. Sure. So, um, right, right, right. And, and did you have any other, uh, I, I guess, you know, like as you started to, you know, go uh, through these different experiences in high school, was there any uh, conception of like, okay, here's my like sort of like career slash life path or whatever? Or was it basically just like, no, nah, n- yeah, no, I just need to play no. music and whatever. Well, <laughs> I mean, uh, so it, it's, it's, it's really weird because I was in a really weird spot where I was, I would, Ashes was like my life, you know? We, we were doing really well, especially in D.C. And, um, you know, we were, I mean, I went when I was 15 and <laughs> Ashes flew to California and toured with, like, played with, like, Strife, Outspoken, Farside, Game Fate. I mean, Mean Season, <laughs> Unbroken. Yeah, big shows. You know, right. big shows with uh, and met all of those people. And so... I, but what was really weird for me was I was a disaster in school and I like everybody else in ashes was like really, they all went to private school and they were all like really good at school and like all were going to go to college and all had like really, really like different life paths. And then like, <laughs> this is a really crazy, but the, I met, my wife i met my i met my wife before that but we decided to go on our first date the same week i dropped out of high school and she got into harvard so i was just (laughs) i was i was just around all of these people that had like futures and it was really scary i mean i i just and i also had started to feel like you know i i was the guy in ashes that booked the shows and dealt with the record label and you know did that stuff and and i felt like i can do something you know so anyway like 
the long story short, I I decided to move to Boston because Matt Squire, who was playing drums in Ashes, was going to BU, and Elena, our singer, was going to Brown. And so kind of I felt like, oh, we'll keep the band together. And my wife, who I was dating at the time, was going to Harvard. So I ended up going to Boston, decided to open a recording studio, <laughs> which was a crazy idea, right? So I moved into this house with um, and set up the studio in the basement. And I lived with, um, do you know Sweet Pete? Oh, yeah, sure. That's Sweet Pete, and then Pete from Mouthpiece, and then Trey from Deathwish, and <laughs> um, and and Ben Chusid, who was in Bane, Ten Yard Fight, Battery, all all of that. And I lived in the. I had a mattress on the floor in the dining room, and I had the studio in literally like a a uh, a cellar. I mean, calling it a basement is, is generous. Uh, is, yeah, yeah, <laughs> is is generous. So I, I thought, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. <laughs> and I just yeah, I we'll remember see, we'll like, see what happens. Yeah. I remember like walking around Boston putting flyers up, like recorded salad days, ten dollars an hour. <laughs> I didn't get one call. Literally, I did not get one call. Nobody called. Nobody wanted to record at salad days for ten dollars an hour. And then one day, um, do you know Rama Mayo? Oh, sure. Big, Big Wheel, Wheel Recreation. Yeah, yeah. So one day Rama came by and um, and Rama came by and was like hanging out with maybe Trey or, or somebody. And they said, oh, have you seen the studio? So he came downstairs and was like, oh, you have a studio. I have a label and I have a band that needs to do a demo for the record we're going to do. And that was Cast Iron Hike, which I know you know, Jake, because I listened to your podcast yeah. with him. Dude, that's am- and, <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, yeah. So so the first band I recorded professionally in my you know dungeon down there was Cast Iron Hike and it was meant to be a demo but it came out really really good and um and became their first EP. And the, there's a couple funny things that came from that. One, their roadie at the time, this guy Stink uh, came and he hated me. He had this like tracksuit on, <laughs> and I was like, "What are you, a break dancer?" And he was like, "This guy's a fucking asshole." <laughs> but this is the amazing thing about all of it is he went on to become one of my best friends in the world. I mean, to this day, we might talk five times a day. Like it's just amazing how much came from that chance you know interaction with rama just stopping by our house one day so the cool thing was those dudes were you know they like they weren't just some new band like um chris papecki had been in backbone which was like an iconic um boston hardcore band and people were stoked to hear the band and all of a sudden it was like where'd you guys record this oh this guy brian so i literally went from the first three months I was there, I did not record one single band. Nothing. Matt Squire and I hung out down there and wrote songs. I got a job at a video store. I literally lived off ramen. <laughs> I was literally fueled by ramen and didn't record anything. By the end of that, by the end of that year, I had recorded 
Oh my gosh. Okay. Converge. Texas is the reason. 108, Prima, 10 yard fight. It's <laughs> like, just go Haven. to Brian. Yeah, go to Brian. I mean, <laughs> I literally, the list, Bane. I mean, so the funny thing was, I started recording all these Boston bands, and then Texas is the reason I had known, you know, all those guys from ashes playing with resurrection and when shelter when norm was in shelter and again they came up to do a demo with no intention of it being anything except a demo because i had ray if you saw my setup i had a little mackie mixing board i had two adats and i had one compressor so good and a little and a little reverb thing (laughs) and that's it i mean that's it so they came up and the the good thing was these bands were good and I, I knew enough to like get it on tape, but not, you know, right. I didn't have enough stuff to fuck anything up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, so yeah, anyway, that's amazing. It, yeah. So that, that was, like, was as, as you started to put one foot in front of the other and start to realize like, oh yes, like I, I can do this and like, this is what I can focus on. Yes. So the, 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 the funny thing about all of it was that, that, I mean, and this is what's so wild, like how full circle life is. I ended up, Norm ended up calling me and saying, Oh, we're playing our, the first Texas is the reason show. I mean, it hadn't come out yet. You should come down. So I went down and it was at Steve Reddy from equal visions loft in New York city. And that's where I met Steve Reddy from EVR. And he was just like, wait, you recorded this? I was 18. You know what I mean? Like, but again, there was no reason for him to trust me, but he ended up saying to me, Oh, um, I have this band Prima and they want to record, you know, a record. And the EVR was the first, I mean, I had recorded things that went eventually went on, to come out on a label but steve was the first label to ever say we want to hire you to make this record and um i will never forget that i mean they they um they've just been such a huge part of my life and that kind of i did not deserve the trust that they gave me. sure that they entrusted you with yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. But then and, and then the studio was rocking and everything was it was I mean it was going so well that I ended up taking on business partners and we took on a bit much bigger space. And then Matt Squire and I started this band Milt like Ashes had it just didn't work trying to do it. So Matt Squire and I started a new band Milltown. We signed to the short version is we ended up signing to Warner Brothers after like only playing like five shows. Cause that was like in that era of like, yeah, everybody was picking up everything. It's like, Oh, you, you guys Every, are everybody's yeah. p- yeah. picking, picking up everything. And it was a really good band, but we ended up going to um, make a record with an awful producer that taught me everything. I never want to be as a producer. And the band ended up breaking up. Uh, the, the, we scrapped the record. We were trying to write new songs. The band ended up in a fist fight and we literally like never were all in a room together again until <laughs> a couple months ago when we played a reunion show with Caven. Right. <laughs> so, so then I, I had the, a falling out with 
my business partners who kind of tried to rip me off and Milltown broke up. The studio fell apart because I should have never gone into business with these people in the first place. I moved back to DC and battery breaks up. And so like I went from like being like cloud nine, like, holy shit, I'm on a major label. I have a recording studio, batteries on revelation, like everything you ever dreamed of. And then I'm back in my parents' basement with nothing. And I was like, oh my God, this is so fucked. So I had to just start over and I rented a house and (laughs) set the control room up in the dining room and put the drums in the basement and just started recording bands again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. That that's what you uh you know that's what you know and like how to do so it's like you know matter what the you know circumstances are it's like well I I can always lean on this yeah so uh, that is when I stopped playing music entirely and and a huge reason was like in Milltown Jonah you know when it, you have a falling out with the singer the band's over right you know what I mean like yeah and then in do? battery battery ken wrote everything we have a, like a pretty bad falling out and the band's over and and i just kind of felt like i need to just focus on one thing and i need to like i can't have my life be like um dictated by others you know i can't have this yeah it can't be contingent um, upon other people's feelings and decisions affecting you not only as a person but obviously like the livelihood as well yeah. And then, yeah. and, and, and things went really well with the studio. And so all of a sudden, I mean, I was literally like seven days a week, 12 hours a day for like the next 10 years. Yeah. I saved up money, bought a house, built the studio behind the house and just kept, just kept going. And it was like a whirlwind. I mean, it was really exciting and it was so fucking awesome to be like that age and the bands were all the same age and we were all like like I think about this all the time with like cuz I think about kind of like mile markers in my life and I think about Bane give blood and I think that record like I was like not peaking but I was finally really good you know what I mean like I really knew how to record by that time and they really knew how to play and I th- at that point had experience enough to like you know and it's so cool to like like go back and listen to that record and just be like wow that because I recorded them the first time when I was 18 and it was like so cool to like see how we all grew like it wasn't just me like I went down my like production and engineering track hardcore and they went down like just being this fucking super badass band (laughs) track and we met again and we're able to just like do some of our best work together. And it's really cool. It was cool. I'm excited to tell you about a new release from a band called Avatar coming out at E1 on August 7th. The record is called Hunter Gatherer. So you can, you know, go quickly pre-save that on any, uh, you know, streaming platform of your choice. But uh, the band got keyed into me and I, I, I watched a video. I streamed their music. It was one of those things where I had never heard of them before, frankly. And after kind of uh, getting to know them a little bit, I was like, these dudes are going for it. Like, you know, it's very theatrical. It's heavy. It's got a lot of stuff going on. But I mean that in a good way. Like, let me just 
sample a little bit of the music for you and you can kind of you know get a feel for it so here it is the song is called silence in the age of apes it's off this upcoming record of theirs so check it out and i'll come right back pretty crazy right like i said they just uh yeah they, they throw everything at you and they're dudes in their mid-20s like they've been doing this for a while but they have such a clear and concise vision for what they want to do musically so again the band is called avatar their record is called hunter gatherer comes out august 7th so pre-save it now pre-order it do whatever it is that you need to do to support this band visit avatarmetal.com for all of that information okay thank you very much e1 um, something I always found interesting about battery kind of at large was the fact that you guys, you know, were, did so well in Europe. Like it's not to say that you did not do well here in the States. Like clearly you, you made an impact here, but like Europe was obviously on like a whole different level. Um, that must, that must, that must've been really kind of, uh, weird, like, because that wasn't, I mean, that wasn't something that, uh, you know, a lot of bands, I mean, yes, hardcore bands obviously toured over in Europe, you know, from Chokehold, Ignite, Sick of It All, like all that, but Battery, it seemed very disproportionately, um, you know, weighted towards Europe. Was that kind of weird, like, as that started to build over there? Where well, so, yeah. I, th- well, so the, the, the crazy thing about that is I don't know if you know this part of the Battery story, but we had broken up, and then, like, all of a sudden, one day I walked into a record store, and the Battery, there was a Battery record. Yeah, the Lost and Found stuff, right. CD, yeah, yeah. and <laughs> right. I, yeah, Lost and Found. And I thought it was a bootleg, but it wasn't a bootleg. Um, I literally did not find out until like two years ago from my brother that like that Lost and Found Distro had been buying battery seven inches and Worlds Collide stuff from my brother and Ken and ended up wanting to put it out over there. Now, I was like not tight with those guys at the time so they just did it and they just never told me and i literally walked into a record store i'm like battery what the (laughs) fuck is this so lost and found ended up saying like people love this over here and do you guys want to make a record and that's what that's what prompted us to do um only the diehard remains so at that point in time this like in 1994 when we we recorded that record in 1993 and when we went on tour, we had only played two shows in the U.S. ever. At <laughs> that's, that time. It's so wild. Ashes had played a million shows. Worlds Collide had played a million, but Battery had not played. And dude, the first night of the first tour in Europe was like 800 people. <laughs> so crazy. And we were like, we were like, I mean, you have to keep in mind that like even a big hardcore show at that time in the U.S. was two, three hundred people. Right. Yep. I had not ever really been to a hardcore show that was that big and that crazy. And the whole tour wasn't like that. The second night of the tour was two people. <laughs> but it was lost and found for all of their warts. They were like a really, really good record label with marketing. I mean, every magazine 
we picked up, there was a full page ad. I was doing interviews every single night. Every town you got to, there, you know, posters everywhere. Like they really, really pushed the band and um and and I loved Europe. So I mean it was like it was like it really wasn't like like we we went to Europe, we came back, we then did um we went back again like four or five months later after the first tour. And then um and at that point we had done two European tours before we had ever toured in the US. And that's when we did um after that we did until the end. And that was the first time we did a US tour where we went out with um Eyelid and Ten Yard Fight and did the whole US. And it was great. And it was an awesome tour. And then went back to Europe. And then came back and we did the Rev tour and went back to Europe one more time and then that was yeah it. yeah, but Europe has always been, I mean, the thing is like, there are a couple things. One, when we were touring there early on, really a lot of bands were not going there. So, I think that the kind of connection you make with people when you're like the first one of the first U.S. bands that they've ever seen is really special, and um. Two, the music and the arts, and it's so, it's so embraced over there. Like it's like, I mean, even now it's so cool to like, like when we when we went back recently, it's just like so amazing how many of the same people are still there. Like still the same promoter at the same club, yeah. and the same venues we've played a million times, and it's just not really like that here. I mean, you know, like. The hardcore scene, it's like the venues and the promoters and stuff like are are not as kind of like um, immersed in. There's a there's a bit yeah there's you know. a bit higher turnover rate not only from like the promoter perspective but obviously people that attend shows I mean it's the in Europe it is so much more of a uh, you know diehard we have a long memory like once we latch onto a band like we will remember them forever. Um, you know, in, in ways that America obviously is a little bit more transitionary when it comes to that. Interestingly, touring Europe back then was really rough. <laughs> I mean, like, sure. Like on the first tour, I'll never forget. We played this squat that had wild dogs in it and they ha- for our own safety, they had to lock us in the room we were sleeping. They like, we couldn't get out and I had to like piss on the floor. I mean, it was like crazy. And then the, we did, um, we did a tour with unbroken over there. That was amazing. But, um, the, the bus, we went on a bus, which sounds amazing, but it didn't have heat. So like literally it was so fucking cold. (laughs) I would sleep in all of my clothes, my jacket, two sleeping bags, and it was so cold that my water bottle would be frozen in the morning. Yeah. That's like, this is, there's something wrong with this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the other thing about touring, touring with unbroken was it was a bad idea. Cause they were like really fucking good. And we really weren't that good. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> totally. And they, and they obviously you had the, I mean? they had the lost and found connection as well. So it's like the shows were equally, yeah. you know, like both bands were in demand. That's really, really funny. Yeah. That, that was the art, art the, those early Europe tours were insane. I mean, they were so good. And like, 
you know it was so cool like on this last we just did this tour last summer with h2o over there and um so many people came out wearing their shirt like from the first tour you know and it's so i don't know i just yeah, it's, it's really, it's, really, it's, it's special, special. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, like I, and now that I'm older and I can reflect on like how special it is to like have been a part of this community for so long, it's just really, really cool. I mean, when I was younger, I just, you know, you're like, it's always about the next thing. And I never really like zoomed out and said, holy fuck, my life has been so crazy and cool. You know what I mean? Like, I never, and no. I, I, I am not. You don't have perspective. You don't have perspective. So it's yeah, that's in, ultim- that's interestingly what it is. now, I am. I like like when we went on that last tour. The, literally, that issue of tour was like the best experience of my life. I loved those guys, and I literally like I had. Well, I'm going to this. I mean, it's cool because I. It, it sounds like my wife gets mad when I say this, but I like. Every single thing could be the last time ever. Like, and I don't say that in a, like, in a bad way. Like, I mean that in a, like, how fucking lucky am I that I'm still getting to do this? And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna miss it this time. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna, like, not appreciate it. I'm not gonna be, like, homesick and thinking about, like, the next tour or, you know, are we selling enough? Are we, you know, how, what are the merch numbers? Like, I'm just like, I'm a fucking playing the music that I literally love more than anything in the world, all over the world with all of these awesome people and reconnecting with people that like have supported my career and my adventures in this thing from you know buying other bands records that I've produced or coming to see my own bands and like I'm not gonna miss it this time I'm gonna like I'm present soak it in and enjoy it yeah no for sure um you know what what's your relationship been like with the sort of business side of music like you said you know you were uh you know the guy booking shows and communicating with the record label and clearly you had to do a lot of that when you were uh you know your production stuff um you know it, it sounds like you had obviously an interest and a proclivity towards it um but you know what what's been your relationship with um you know kind of the art and commerce side of things well the funny thing is i don't care about money at all I mean, that sounds like I care about money to the extent that that like, you know, I, 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 it's a tool to live, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a tool to live. It's not, it's not something that I value, you know, the, the, the funny thing is I've done well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> despite the fact that it's not a motivator, it's, 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 it's interesting because I, I feel like every decision I've ever made in my life that was to make money has never, has always been the wrong decision and often did not lead to to success. You know what I mean? Like the decisions I made where it was like, I love this. I want to be involved. I don't care what the budget is, have been the, the decisions that have been the best decisions and brought me the most success. So it's, it's interesting because I'm not, I'm good with money. 
and I'm and I'm responsible with it and I'm have a good mind for business and the music business and you know in the brief time that I stepped away and actually got like a real job for a time was really quite successful at running this company that I was running um I just don't really care about money and so it's like funny when like that was kind of a wake up call for me when I was like I took this job and I was making a whole bunch of money and it was like probably the most miserable I've ever been ever <laughs> and it's like because all of a sudden you're working doing something you don't care about at all and the only reward of it is something you don't care about at all you know right so, yeah it's just like the, the the snake eating its tail it's like wait a minute I yes. caught this I don't care about this so yeah I, I totally get that yeah so you know I don't know like I try and not think about it you know and in on the flip side of that, like I try and, you know, we, we, I've had like a, you know, I, I mean, I had a label deal through Atlantic records and I moments of grace. Don't act like, that, yeah. Don't, don't yeah, act like right. I don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, what's funny is I, it's, it's funny cause I was like on circus survives. Uh, I, I was on circus survives, um, uh, their Patreon podcast the other day and oh, sure. Anthony asked me about moments and grace. And I wish I had said this at the time because I, I, someone said to me pretty recently, could you imagine if Moments and Grace had come out after Circa? <laughs> like, sure. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like, like Circa changed the landscape in this like subculture in a lot of ways. And it like Moments and Grace, people did not know what to make of it. Like, no, it's not like, at all singing like this and it's spacey and it's, you know what I mean? Like in a post circa world, I think that record could have done really well. Songs were great. And oh, um, dude, for sure. It was, it, I, it's I, great. I, yeah, that's why I met. I, I tour managed Alexis on fire when uh, ah. Moments and Grace. And, and so I met Jeremy and it was one of those things where it's like every night I was just like, Dude, why are children looking at this like with dead faces? This stuff is amazing. And so yeah, I totally yeah. get that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he he's really amazing. That whole thing ended up being a bad situation. Um yeah. not a bad situation, but basically like I had this idea of like a business model that has now gone on to be proven that worked really well where like we would sign these bands to and then partner with indie labels to help develop them was kind of the gist. But sure. then what happened was as soon as I signed my deal with Atlantic, which was like 100% to like um, develop new bands and focus on like really kind of grassroots stuff. Um, Warner Brothers got bought by like some public company and – and then they were just basically like, we can't do that. We need shit that's going to happen now. So Moments and Grace was never meant to come out on Atlantic that way. And had we done what we our original plan was, which was like partner with like Equal Vision or somebody like that and, and develop it that way, I think it would have done way, way better. But, you know. Yeah. And, and, no, I and agree. Then, I, I, def I definitely agree. So, so anyway, so the business side of things, I mean – I'm pretty good at it, but I don't care. I don't, I, it's not like I, uh, it's the, it doesn't motivate me. And the, every time I find myself thinking about that stuff, like sales or, you know, 
<laughs> shit like that. I'm just fucking miserable. And actually, you know, it's funny. I, in the studio, I, you know, when like absolute punk started like posting like sound scans and things like that. And all of a sudden, like what bands were selling became like a part of the story, you know, like in that era, I, it made me really miserable. Not, not, not absolute punk. I'm just saying like, all of a sudden I found myself thinking about that in the studio. Oh, is this a single? Is this, you know, is this going to sell well? And it made me so fucking miserable because like one, you know, honestly, most of the shit I love isn't big. You know what I mean? Like, that's not why I've ever got into this. It was never like a motivator for, it's not like, it's funny actually because Matt Squire and I, right? were incredibly close but he wanted like when he was like putting music on and we were driving in ashes he'd be putting on like you know like pop like you know pop stuff as well as hardcore but like he always wanted like big stuff like and it doesn't it doesn't shock me that he went on to be so fucking successful but i like like dag nasty and like i like shit that is not you know like never was mainstream so it's like all of a sudden i found myself in this world where it's like i'm trying to do something that i don't even really care about and i'm like judging my success and failure again on like something that doesn't actually matter to me at all so i actually like it made me really depressed. Like, you know, you produce a record and it comes out and it flops, right? This doesn't make it a fucking bad record. Sometimes that makes it like the best record because a lot of the shit that is like the best, you don't even realize how fucking good it is till way later. And so there was like a really pivotal point in my at the end of the Atlantic era of my career where I feel like that really sidetracked my production stuff as well, because all of a sudden I was like, you know, you're getting CC'd on 200 emails a day and your phone's ringing off the hook and you're trying to make a record. And it's like, you're, you're just like pulled in a million different directions. And it, I I just didn't thrive in that with, with that going on. And when I decided to build I ended up selling my studio in Beltsville to Matt Squire. And that that was the studio where I did like the the first Circa record and uh, Thrice Illusionist, both Thrice records I did. And that was a really cool place. But I really wanted to have like a real, like, I wanted like an, a studio that I felt like was like at the time, like on par with where the bands were at. And when I made that decision to kind of recommit to only focusing on excuse me, production. I did like some like real soul searching and I, I basically, I kind of like, I like said to myself, I can't control if this is going to sell. Like there's so many things that, 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 that fall into like whether or not something hits or doesn't hit. Right. I can't control in the end, if a band is going to love what we did together, like, I don't know, you know, are they going to be unhappy with the guitar sounds? Are they going to be unhappy with the, what the drums or whatever the fuck? 
all of that stuff I can't control. The only thing that I can control is knowing that like I gave my heart and soul to every record every single time. And when I kind of like made that kind of commitment to myself to like stop thinking about the business side of it, I started making better records again. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's just, it just, it's just funny because I think some people are inspired by, holy shit, this could be fucking huge. I just don't look, I just don't go there. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I want it to be, I want it to be, I want it to be big because if it's fucking great and I love that, like, I love that, like, so many bands, like, we, I helped them make records that got their career on track and they're able to have houses and kids and things like that. And, like, I want the success for them in that sense. But when I was thinking, is this a hit? Does it get to the chorus fast enough? Is this a... I just made bad decisions and I made records that didn't feel like my records and kind of when I just kind of reconnected with like the thing that mattered to me the most in the beginning, I started making better records again. And then just as just as I was starting to really like get in the zone, the bottom fell out of the music business and things got really really stressful really really fast because i had this big studio with a shitload of overhead and budgets went from you know down like you know at first 20 percent, then 30 percent, then 50 percent, and then literally it got to the point where i was for some of the records i wanted to do it hardly even covered just the sheer overhead much less pay me anything and um that was a really wild and it was like right when my daughter was born and it was like a really um it was kind of a crazy 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 time right and so then you that was actually what i was going to ask next where the you know when you uh you know were uh you know you had beltsville and like you said you there there was so much happening from the production stuff like where it was like you know everybody you know, ostensibly an independent music scene, whether you were, you know, punk, hardcore, whatever was always like, Oh yeah. Like, you, you know, go to, go to Brian, like, you know, to see if, see if Brian has available time and stuff like that. And then, uh, it, you know, and then obviously as things started to change, and like you said, as the music industry evolved to where budgets weren't what they were, um, you know, was it, was it one of those things that like you, um, I, not, not took it personally, but it was like, you know, uh, that is a sort of ego play where, and not saying that you were buying into the ego play, but just being of like, oh, I was this like, you know, quote unquote hot commodity. And then now I'm not because of all these extenuating circumstances or whatever. Um, was that, was that well, a tough, I guess, mental shift for you yeah. to be able? Well, so th- I didn't ever think about it like that because I never stopped being busy. Um, you know, it was like, It was like basically most of the labels I had like a really good relationship with. So it was always kind of like, I'll do the record for what you have, you know? I mean, like if I loved the band, I I can think of very few times where I ever didn't do a record because... Right, their budget wasn't there. Right, right, right. The money wasn't there, right? I I mean, look, I think that the budget for The Illusion of Safety, which we spent a month on, was $6,000. You know what I mean? Like, sure. you know what I'm saying? And like 300,000 records later or whatever the fuck it is. Like, I don't really care what I never cared about that part of it. 
Um, and I, I didn't take the budgets dropping personally, but certain things happened where I had never had a label not pay me ever. It had never happened. And then like right when my daughter was born, we were doing the bled silent treatment record. Mm, yeah. And I hadn't, I hadn't gotten a deposit from, from vagrant and, um, but, but I had done so many records for Vagrant. I mean, it's fucking Vagrant, right? Would you ever think that, like, you're not going to get paid by Vagrant? No, like, no. No. So, Bled's there. We're making the record. We're almost done with the record. And I and I said to my manager at the time, like, hey, I still haven't gotten a deposit for this. And then it turned out that, like, Vagrant's deal with Universal had fallen through. And the Bled was, like under the universal thing and universal didn't want the record and they they were just like we can't pay you and it was a pretty big you know it was a big big budget and they were there for like two months and and i still had all the expenses associated with having a band living in my studio for two months but (laughs) no no income and my daughter had just been born and at that time you know, I mean, we, I was successful. So we had like a weekend house on the river in West Virginia and we had a big house that we lived in and I had a 6,000 square foot studio in like a really nice neighborhood downtown. I mean, the fucking utility bills alone were insane. So all of a sudden it was like, holy shit, you know, you don't get paid like $80,000. <laughs> I was just not... I was not running my business in a way where I was like preparing myself to have things like that happen, which, cause I mean, until it happens, you know, I mean, most people aren't planning for that. And I, I'm not like, I'm, I was, I was still, I was still pretty young and, and, and we ended up having to like pay shit on credit cards and like that, like that, the downturn in the, the combination of like, so I will say in Vagrant's defense, they, God bless them, they did finally pay me. It took like maybe six or seven years. They paid me in little bits every time. every, And they, they basically said, we will pay you, but it I'm going to just have to pay you when I can. And we went on to do more records that were like totally fine. It was just that Bled record was this outlier because it was like under a, like the whole thing had fallen apart while we were already in the studio. And um, they weren't a part of this new deal they signed. So, you know, we, yeah. we went. So, yeah, it was just this that weird limbo. We, yeah. I mean, I went to, I did the Census Fail records after. Um, after after that and they always paid me and they were always good but like he would give me a little bit every every time he probably got a check from a distributor and eventually did pay me but what came of that was i mean all of a sudden it was like i don't i have this huge debt now right because i had all of this money that didn't come in so then we put a bunch of things on credit cards just to keep things going but then the budgets the bottom dropped out so then it was like i really wasn't able to like there wasn't any flow you were playing catch up i was right. i was playing catch up yeah. and it was like and we ended up having to we we didn't ha- we we sold our house we sold the house in west virginia we sold i mean we 
we basically like, and it, my daughter had just been born. So it's like all of a sudden we have like $1,800 a month in childcare. And, and it was, it was so stressful. And so, I mean, I just had so much to do to kind of like keep the train on the tracks. I wasn't thinking at all like, oh, I'm not the guy anymore. These budgets are bad and it's a reflection right. of you me. Had no- <laughs> I was like, right. I got to pay these bills. Survival I mode. Gotta, yeah, we got to yep. sell the house. We got to do this. We got to like, we had to make, and we did. We made some like really smart decisions. We, we, um, but kind of at the end of it, I ended up feeling like, I'm so fucking burnt and I'm so tired and I just can't do this anymore. So the, and the other thing that, that ushered in at the, at around that time, which is now a thing, which really in the early, the early days of my, of making records wasn't a thing where bands started coming to the studio with nothing written. And wanted me to write their songs and sometimes play the shit. And like, I think that like records, there was such a, um, high turnover, like records had to keep coming out or you weren't current anymore. And so labels were sending bands into the studio when they really had no business going in. And I'm like feeling like I'm not feeling that like magic anymore. I'm feeling like I'm a babysitter at my job instead of a producer, right? And then I'm going home and have an infant and I'm like So I just had I I just was a, a bit disillusioned. So we 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 ultimately decided to sell the building that the studio was in. And um which was the best decision was heartbreaking, but it was the best decision of my life because we had bought it at a time where it was like it was we were like on the edge of a really nice neighborhood but bordering just kind of like this wasteland and when i bought it it was that way by the time i sold it you walk down the street and it's like the four seasons and whole foods and all of this it had become a really nice neighborhood so the property had become valuable and it basically was like i was able to sell it i was able to like we were able to kind of like get our shit kind of back on track entirely. And at first I thought I'm going to move. I moved in with Paul Levitt to, to a studio space in us. Do you know, um, Kevin Bernstein? No, I don't. He's, he's a producer. He did like the early pianos become the teeth. He's a brilliant producer. And then Paul Levitt is like one of my best friends. And he's, he did like all time low and a lot of like, Cool yeah yeah I've, stuff i know i know the name so i moved into a studio space in the building where they were like i took over a studio that was there and basically that little year that i was there i did um i'm not going to say the records that made me totally i had a i had i had a couple records that i still when i think about making them it brings me like unwavering joy which are i did the last fireworks record there and i did the angel dust ad record the pink one i don't know if you know that one yep i do and then and then i did turnstile non-stop feeling there and i did um i did uh oh my god 
I did some stuff that was just awesome. That's really cool. But I had a I had a handful of projects where it was literally like I'm playing their songs for them. I'm writing their songs for them. And I like can't in in that little era of time, I can't tell you how many times I said to bands, it's such a shame that I care more about your band than you do. (laughs) Ultimately, I kind of just felt like I just I need a change. And yeah, I ended up applying for a job like so the little we we won't go down this rabbit hole but i had been building my i always built my own studios and and then my wife and then we had gotten into like rehabbing houses and i have like a deep love for architecture and construction and things of that nature so i applied for a job as like a project manager for a construction company and and kept the studio for a little while, but 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 just did what I never in a million years thought I would do. And I, I took this job. And then I'm a fucking hardcore kid that's like hustled my whole life. You know what I mean? Like I was booking tours when I was 15. And, you know, I don't want to say like entrepreneurial, but like. A, You're I mean, a multitasker. Just what you I get do. it. You, yeah. yeah. So yeah. they had never had anybody come and be like that, you know. So within six months of me being there, um, I was the COO. They made me COO, and I was essentially running the company. And, you know, it's a you know, 20, $25 million a year company, and I'm you know, it was like crazy, like crazy life change, you know? And, and then, I mean, and, and actually, believe it or not, Paul Levitt, I hired him there because he was kind of in a similar transition where he was like not able to like make enough in the studio to like have a kid and have things like that. And he still works there. But I, um, and at first it was kind of fun, you know, it was like, Oh, I've never gotten a paycheck in my whole life. Like I've never, you know what I mean? Like I've never, I'd never had that. Yeah. This is what it feels like. And then, and then one, the people that work there were like, horrible people and and two my job involved me driving being alone a lot and like ultimately you know I mean I struggled with like severe depression my entire life and like when I was in the studio, I just poured myself into the records like hardcore. And I, it was kind of like the way that I didn't let that kind of like totally overtake me. And I, um, you know, and then the thing is like, it's, it sounds awful. I and like, I almost say feel bad saying it because I know that bands will end up feeling like, I don't know, like I basically I felt like I couldn't ever share that with my clients <laughs> because I felt like, you know, you're the producer is the fearless leader. You know, you're the bands in there, super neurotic, anxious, afraid, like, and, and my, my role was to, to not be afraid and, and to lead then to, to be the person that had the perspective to like, like 
lead them to where they needed to go. And I, I always felt like if they knew how like fucked up I actually felt and how like kind of fragile I really was that they wouldn't, I couldn't do that thing. So I kind of just buried it all and I, I buried it. And then, and then I, because because I was around people all the time and constantly moving and constantly making records and constantly having things that I could put all of that into that were like, that were like productive things. All of a sudden I have this job that's paying me way more than I ever made it ever in the studio. But I, again, I don't fucking care about that. And I'm all by myself all the fucking time. And like it slowly just built and built and built. And I was so like, instead of having anything to um, like pour that into, like I tried to care about this job the way that I just do. And that just made me feel worse. And then I would get home and I would just drink because like, I just didn't have any other way to like, um, deal with like like I just needed to shut it off you know all of these things like it, I was thinking and 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 I literally like could not escape like literally like 20 plus years not allowing myself to or you know I don't want to say that I buried it in my work because that isn't I my work gave me something to pour it into. When I didn't have that anymore, it became really fucking apparent that I was a mess. And like my wife and I had, were so disconnected. And I felt like when I got home, I literally just could not function. And I just, it was way easier to just like, numb it than it was to feel it and I then didn't have anything one I my entire world was these bands my my entire social network is my clients I hate to call them clients you know what I mean yeah, yeah. but there's this whole side of me that they don't know about at all right like they literally have no idea that what that I've like struggled with this my whole life to them I'm Brian who's fucking yelling at them in the studio to do it again and is sending Chuck Reagan to take vocal lessons and is this like mythical person that I really wasn't. And 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 then all of a sudden, you know, you wake up one day and you realize like this person that everybody that loves me so much is doesn't exist. Like that's not who I am. And and then you also have the feeling of like i i mean i mean i you can't if you look at my life and i'm not saying this in an egotistical way at all i'm saying this if you look at the trajectory of like the things that i've been able to be a part of in my life it's really stunning and i i know that right the successes i've had the experiences i've had the people i've been able to like intimately work with are some of the most incredibly beautiful and talented people ever. And when you get to a point in your life where you're like, okay, I went from having no hope for my life to marrying my college 
my high school sweetheart becoming a renowned record producer, touring the world and having this community of people that are just so incredible. And I'm still fucking totally miserable. It was like the scariest, you know, like, what do you like? The studio's gone. I don't have a reason to be in touch with all of these people anymore. I have no friends that aren't band people, right? And I have no reason to really be talking to the band people. And then you also have this weird thing where some of the people, band people, feel like, oh, we're not recording with Brian anymore, so we're not friends with Brian anymore. You know what I mean? Like, Right, right. Right? And, and like... I literally, I I literally was in the darkest. I mean, I, it's like, I shudder to think of it now. I mean, I, I like, I like, I, I'm not going to get into like things I thought, but it was a really terrifying. um, Sure. It was, it was a really scary time for me. And, um, then what ended up happening was we ended up um the guys really wanted to do a battery show and um and um and we decided to to do i i reluctantly decided to do that but the timing of it was like kind of totally fucking perfect in that all of a sudden it was like i was in this really bad spot and then all of a sudden i had this reason again that I needed to be like talking to people and talking to friends and talking to people that I had known my whole life. And I also, because, you know, like the battery stuff, that's like a more emotional side of me than like the, the producer who's like the ball buster, <laughs> you know, in charge of everybody person. And I, um, what, became immediately clear to me was that literally just having something to look forward to started to like wake me up like all of a sudden I was like in the morning I'm not like whatever when I get home from work you know I've got like interviews I need to do and art I need to look at and I had a reason to not come home and just start drinking and I had a reason to reach out to people. And then we like did a new song and it was like, I hadn't created something of my, I I never thought I would play music again in my entire life. And all of a sudden, like I literally, so we did this battery song and I literally wrote the lyrics and then thought, I don't know if I want to say this. Like it's so personal. Like I, I basically wrote it about being in a mental hospital and then the fear of knowing that that part of me exists and being terrified that I would pass that on to my daughter. And, um, <clears throat> and what was amazing was we did that. And then like all of my like band friends <laughs> that I was like lived in fear of them ever knowing that that part of me exist, this existed started reaching out to me and being like, dude, I had no idea. That's like, and all of a sudden it was like, you know, I have this new connection like with these people where like, I'm not like the producer ball buster guy. Like I'm 
like we're connecting in a totally new way. And like people's reaction wasn't, Oh fuck. Like that dude, you know, it's fucking (laughs) crazy. It was dude. How did I never know that this happened to you? Like, how have we known each other for this long? And, um, and then, so we did the battery tour and literally it was like life changing for me. Like I, I just like realized like I missed music. I missed the community. I missed having a reason to like wake up and have something on the horizon to look forward to. And, um, and yeah. And then, and then like, you know, that, that pulled you, that, that pulled you out of your, your headspace that you were obviously dwelling in. It didn't, it didn't totally pull me out, but what it did was like, it gave me like a glimmer of hope that, and it gave me like some perspective on that. Whatever the fuck was happening in my life could not go on. Like that there was a me that it could exist that wasn't totally miserable spending every waking moment trying to not think what I was thinking. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, and there was like a me that like could then be just, you know, like could, could, could express those things because that's the amazing thing about music. It's like, I'm literally like one of the most private people you'll ever meet. Right. I don't like to post things. I don't like people know it. Like I don't want to go anywhere and have anybody recognize me. Like I don't like any of that, but you get me in a fucking hardcore show and stick a mic in my hand in a sweaty ass room and I will pour my heart out like nobody's business. And that's the amazing thing about that. I mean, that's the thing that makes me still love and believe in hardcore music so much is that it is like this medium where like it is about like honesty and, and, and like you can say, like I can say something in a song or into a microphone that I literally would never say to anybody one-on-one. And for someone like me that has all of this bottled up, like I just need that. So interestingly, the thought originally was I had started writing all of this. Like I had started writing again and just to kind of get some of this shit out. And, and then (laughs) the original thought was that, um, that we would make another battery record. And, um, I now I told you earlier that like, I didn't want to have like a band contingent on one person that could like have a falling out and have it all fall apart. Well, I also in battery, I never wrote the music. I only wrote the lyrics and, and at this point in my life, 20 years later, I mean, I, I'm a, pretty accomplished songwriter i'm really like love writing songs and i'm not gonna play music where i'm not writing a part of that process right it was fine when i was 18 but like now i want to write like if it's it's a huge thing for me so i literally wrote like 20 song ideas and i sent them to ken and he didn't like he didn't even like one of them not even like a riff and um and it was cool i mean it was fine like we have this weird relationship where 
when I met him, I was in sixth grade and he was much older and he was already good. I mean, I learned how to write songs and play music and all that shit from him. So we have, I don't want to say it's, it's not an unhealthy relationship in that, like we get along really, really well, but I think there's like part of it that never quite readjusted to like at this point in time. I mean, I have people that like fly from all over the world to come just write songs with me. It's kind of weird to like want to have a band where it's like, no, sorry, dude, I write everything like you're, you know what I mean? Like, and I think part of that is that like the lens he still sees me through is like the little kid lens. You know what I mean? So anyway, we go out and we have lunch. We go to this food court in the mall. And I'm like, so there's nothing you like. And he's like, no. And he had sent me a bunch of stuff. And he's like, what about the stuff I sent you? And I'm like, it's just like, it's it's not, I'm not feeling it. And it was like, totally cool. Well, let's just not do this. You know what I mean? Sure. And then... Mike Schleibaum, um, who's in Battery, is also in Darkest Hour and is, like, one of my closest friends in the world, said to me, like, dude, you have to fucking do. These songs are awesome. I love them. Like, are you going to, like, let the fact that, like, one person doesn't like them keep you from? And he literally would, like, torture me and torture me and torture me. And then finally one day he said to me, like, um, yo, Pat from Majority Rule is in town, and I set up so you got to come over and like demo these song ideas with him, and um, and that was the beginning of what is now Be Well, and you know I went and jammed that stuff, and it's uh, and so I think it was good in that, like, I think that the world does not need a battery record that isn't incredible, right? And you can't make an incredible record if you're not, like I didn't wanna just make a record to make a record where Ken didn't like what I was writing and I didn't like what he was writing and I think that ultimately it was better to just, I mean, it would have been a whole lot fucking easier to make a new battery record than start a whole new fucking band in my 40s, you know, (laughs) with nothing. But but I'm really, like, happy that it ended up, um, you know, kind of playing out the, the way. Panning out that way. And then, and, and honestly, like, Be Well has been, like, it's been, like, cathartic for me. Like, I, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it, because of the time that I wrote the songs, it's pretty, like, emotionally heavy. And it's, like... I mean, I don't want to say it's it's like it's funny because some people find it really dark and some people find it really hopeful. And for me, it's it's um it is the most honest thing that I've ever done in my life. Like I actually can't believe that I like put on paper some of the things that I did. And I've had multiple people say to me, Are you sure you want to say that? <laughs> and for me, it's like what making that record has um doing this band and making that record has meant for me is one just fucking saying it 
takes so much of the power away and like hearing back they like i know how unreasonable some of the things i feel are you know and it's like saying it and not feeling like like hiding things about yourself from the world that are like integral to who you are as a person is so corrosive you know i mean i think all the time about like how many of my friends that i now know are gay and hid that or were abused and hid that or someone like me where morbidly depressed at times in my life and i literally never said it to anyone you know and the i mean the the weight that that puts on someone and and how it can like kind of eat at you and really like i mean it 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 can get to a point where it can like entirely consume you you know and i think that like what's hard is i mean i'm not i'm not like a i mean i don't have like some public persona where you know people know i'm pretty private so people don't know that but like my friends you know having people that are like big part of my life not know something that's such a big part of me it's it's super you know the loneliness that accompanies that is pretty like paralyzing you know and um and and so what's awesome is that i you know i i kind of i i got that shit out and it's like also having something to think about and work on and and like has been like you know i'm never gonna not be someone that has like mental health issues but i mean right like i am in such a better place right now and like so much of it has to do with like making music again and having a reason to talk to Dan Sanshaw every day and, you know, like having art to look at and having, you know, things to worry about that aren't just like unreasonable kind of like crazy thoughts in my head. It's just like, I am, it's like, again, I'm looking at my life and thinking like, God, like this community, like what this has meant to me at pivotal times is just like really fucking incredible. Yeah, no, that's 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 amazing. I mean, you uh, you you summarized it perfectly. I was gonna obviously ask you about be well, but you you did a great job at it. But um, yeah, I, I could obviously go on for a while, but I'm not gonna punish you anymore. But uh, thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and being super open because uh, yeah, I just really appreciate it. Yeah, well, I love what you do, and I um, I feel like I've known you my whole life, but like I don't. <laughs> so we have to we have to. Um, we have to make that. That's a new life goal is for us to stay in touch. And uh, absolutely. It's my, my absolute pleasure. <laughs> well, thank you. That was a long one, right? Hopefully you enjoyed the conversation. I know I did. And uh, yeah, thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much to Alexa, the publicist for setting this up. And uh, yeah, just a, a great, great conversation next week. I've got a, a very, very good band. Year of the Knife, Madison Watkins. She is the bass player for the band. And uh, yeah, they have a new record out. And it's just, it's really, really good. I want to have Madison on, so we did it up. Anyways, 
That's what we got next week. Until then, please be safe, everybody.